You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for its, on its four corners. <clears throat> its horn shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also, also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain. So shall it be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle on the south side of the court shall have hangings of fine twine linen a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise for its length on the north side there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long. Its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and the fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side there shall be hangings for fifty cubits with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be fifty cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side the hangings shall be fifteen cubits with their three pillars and three bases for the gate of the court there shall be a screen, 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be flit with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. This length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, the height five, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze, all the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we ask that you would speak. You've done so in the reading of your word. We ask that you would do so in the preaching of your word. We ask that you would help us in our frailty. For passages like this do not naturally grip us. That is not the weakness of your word. It is the weakness of the listener. 
And so we ask that you would correct our hearts, our minds, and even our hands and how we behave for Christ's sake. Amen. Covenant College is our denominational college. You probably know that. Maybe you don't. It belongs to the denomination. It is on top of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, technically, by about 400 yards, not in Tennessee. Lookout Mountain is a square mountain, flat on the sides and flat on the top, which makes for all kinds of delightful weather effects as clouds roll in and then have to kind of roll up over the mountain. Fall semester of my freshman year, uh, we went days without seeing the sun. There was one period, I think it was a full week, where we didn't see the sun because the clouds set in. I lived on the second floor and regularly could not see the grass outside my windows. It was great fun. I loved it. I'm not particularly claustrophobic. Those that had seasonal affective disorder or claustrophobia kind of went a little crazy that semester. It was the worst semester in school history. It did, however, make for great fun for soccer games. The field is kind of on the other side of the mountain a little bit. At the time, they have a new field now, but it was, it was down a little bit from the rest of the mountain. So the fog, any fog that was lingering on a Saturday morning would settle in and kind of bank in the field. So you could sit in the stands and look out on the side and it would be pretty over there. And just this cloud of fog sitting over the field, it was amazing. And it was always fun for when they announced the teams because the opposing team would be sitting on their bench kind of right up here near the stands where everybody else was, but the field would be completely covered. And being Covenant College, we are the Scots from Scottish theology, and so then the bagpipes would kick in on the other side of the field, kind of just floating through the clouds. And then the drums would kick in. And it wasn't just a couple of drums. We had, when I was a student, about 15 guys that brought buckets and trash cans and, you know, all the big things that you possibly could get. So it sounded like some sort of ancient battle was getting ready to take place. And then as the clouds were sitting there and the bagpipes were wailing and the sound of drums just echoed back off the other part of the stands and through the mountains, then the team would come out and then the student body started singing. They had chants. I don't even remember what they were, but they were loud. I remember as a freshman, first time I saw that happen like that and thought, my goodness, how do you play in this? How do, you, how do you try to play in an atmosphere like that? And again, this is nothing like SEC football or ACC football or even South American soccer where people get killed in the stands every game. But even as a young man, 17 years old, it like clicked in my head like, what a moment. Like, what a sense of occasion. How, how much does your blood have to be boiling and you're waiting for kickoff? Coach would always tell his players that if the fog was in, the second you crossed midfield, shoot, because they can't see the ball. (laughs) I can't tell you how many goals I watched go in from 40, 50, 55 yards from a guy struck like that that just floated it, just shoot. It was a terrible place to play under those conditions. But it was a great place to watch a game. Again, it it had a sense of, of weightiness. A sense of, dare we even say, awe. 
And I'll be honest, it was hard for me to think of an illustration that captured that feeling because that is not a feeling Americans feel very often. We don't feel awe at the moment, at a sense of occasion, at the feeling of the circumstances around us like that, where the building, where the, the events, where the, the feeling all around us just kind of washes over us and you feel so small with the moment feeling so much bigger. The other popped in my brain growing up in Charlotte was the day they opened the Bank of America Tower. The time, it was massive. It was right across the street from my dad's office. I know his productivity dropped that year watching that building be built, just like mine has this month, watching the big toys dig in the dirt. <laughs> Being out in front of it, and they had all the song and the dance and the parade and the music and everything, but when they had our military rappel down the sides as a young man, just shocking as to, one, how high that building was. I don't do heights very well. And to see these guys just run and jump off the side. And then bounce and then bounce their way down. Again, just it was overwhelming, the sense of just, man, this is a moment bigger than me for a silly building. We don't do that type of thinking very well. And the problem with that is that is very much the type of building moment that's being described in Exodus 27. That type of building that just when you saw it would be overwhelming. I mean, think about it. For a number of reasons, most of the buildings these people had seen their entire lives were hovels. I mean, they they were shacks. They were the type of things that slaves build when they're being oppressed by Egyptians that are trying to work them to death. I'm going to be honest, when the nation's trying to work you to death, you probably aren't building a mansion for yourself on your free time. It's probably just big enough for your family to stay in, and that's it, nothing else. Also, we know from this time in history, it's not like they had these massive palatial, you know, building (laughs) glorious things. Maybe the Egyptians had some of that. And then when they're brought out of Egypt, they're brought out of Egypt in a panic and a rush, and they're brought out of Egypt, and effectively with tents, nomadic people having to build tents as they go. You also have to think from this time in history that uh, for a large number of these people, they had not seen any sort of kind of magnificent building, like anything that would have just been awe-inspired, that would have been overwhelming. And these chapters, again, as they're hard for us to wrap our minds around, most of us don't enjoy architectural plans, some do. It gets lost on us. The sense of occasion, the sense of moment, the the, the awe. That's the first thing I want us to kind of consider as we look at verses uh, 9 through 19, the kind of final description of the tabernacles to think about how much it would have brought just this kind of sense of occasion, this sense of awe of just walking into the building. Again, thinking about a a people group that live as nomadic people at this time. They have tents. The tents are a yurt, you know, nomadic skin tent that's strapped, uh, staked down. And here you have something larger than that. 
The walls are described, and the walls as we have here in verses 9 through 19 are just bigger than head high. Just enough that you can't see over them that would have highlighted the size of the building. And again, the building is, you know, a cubit's about 18 inches. The other way it measures your fingertips to the inside of your elbow. It's about 18 inches, so one and a half feet for all of these. And the building, for our standards, is rather small. The court of the tabernacle, by our standards, is rather small. I mean, you look at the buildings that we have planned there in the back and uh, one of those buildings in its own right is larger than the entire temple or tabernacle kind of complex. But in the era in which this is being built, it would have not been insignificant. It would have been surprisingly large for a nomadic people. And it would have been short on the back. Well, I'll do it this way since get the right east and west this time. Uh, short on the back, long on the sides. You would not have been able to see over from the sides or from the back, but when you walked in through the front, they would have had curtains probably just set in a little bit on their own stands to kind of function like a little bit of a narthex. And those curtains, unlike the outside of the rest of the building, would have had colors to them that you probably had never seen, certainly never owned. I mean, you're nomadic people that didn't own anything until the Egyptians gave you their stuff on the way out. Everything you've owned up to this point in your life is dirt colored. And here we have lovely colors with embroidery and and lovely things that those skills had only been used to further the Egyptians. And now being put to use to honor our God. And if you were to go into this building and the curtain would have been right in front of you and you stepped around the edges of it, and when you looked in, it would have been staggering by those standards. Lovely curtains all on the inside of the finest materials. Everything made of polished bronze that you could see at first. Again, okay, big whoop. Think about the location of the place this is being built. Ancient Near East is known for cloudy days, right? It's known for having shade and fog just like coming. No. It's known for its heat and for its sunniness and for its brightness. And to think about stepping into a building that everything is either lovely linen on the sides or polished, burnished bronze. I mean, to think about what is stepping in there, what it would have looked like. I mean, the altar that we're going to get to in a minute would have been radiant. It probably would have hurt your eyes if you went during the middle of the day. Even the tent pegs on the outside holding, you know, the braces holding it up, the stakes themselves are made of bronze. The bases uh, that the posts would have been set in are made of bronze and then moving into silver as you get further in. And as you got there, you would have had uh, the altar here. You would have the basin. You would have some other kind of furniture right up at the front that would have been gleaming, glowing. It would have looked like it was on fire, one because one was, the other because it was just so bright. But behind that would have been something even more staggering. Would have been the actual tabernacle itself, not the court Not the place where we can all kind of go and hang out, but the place where God lives. That tent being larger, remember the outside covering made of sea cows, whatever those were. 
the inside there, probably having the curtains pulled so you would be able to see it on the other side. And inside, not bronze in there, inside there would have been gold and it was lit by a massive candelabra. It would have been radiant. I mean, it would have looked like a flashlight, effectively. I mean, if you didn't go during the middle of the day, if you went later in the day or earlier in the morning where it wasn't fully bright yet, inside the actual temple itself would have looked like a flashlight because everything on the inside is polished and shiny and gold, and so it's just going to reflect light out. It would have been marvelous. And to think of the sights and the smells, the smell of the sacrifices, the smell of blood, Again, remember, he's knowing just a little bit of blood, a lot of blood. That pungy, tangy, kind of mm, acrid smell in there. And then looking back in through the temple, or the tabernacle, you would have seen the big curtain in the back, knowing that on the other side of that, that's where God lived. And again, for us today, we we see architecture all the time. We see marvelous buildings. We live in the richest time of the richest people in the history of humanity. No one else has ever had access to amazing things to see like we have. The worst part about the uh, Internet is that it desensitizes us to wonder. Again, I told you the first time I saw the Grand Canyon, my first thought was, man, that looks Photoshopped because it's so big. Your brain couldn't process it. But in a world with none of those things, where most things you interacted with were dirt colored, dirt composite, filled with dirt and dust, here was the house of the Lord which shone and smelled and had all kinds of sounds all kinds of feels, it would have been a full experience to step inside. A tremendous sense of occasion. And in some ways, that, that I think was a, a tremendous object lesson for them. To teach them about the greatness, the grandeur, the glory, the might, the big, the wonder of their God. How marvelous their God is. Again, it was easy for them to think about that when these directions were first given because these directions are given on the base of a mountain where they're not allowed to, cow, not allowed to let the cows on because God will kill them. The storms are raging around. There's lightning. And it would have been terrifying there. But to think that as they go from that mountain, as they journey throughout all of the places that God would lead them until the temple is built, this building, this nomadic tent was an amazing event. This would not be the kind of place that you just casually went walking into. That you're carrying on your conversation with your buddy and you step into it and that conversation continues through the threshold. Now, I don't know how many of you have traveled, but you may have, ever, you may have had that experience in some of the other buildings and some of the other places in the world. The first time you went in maybe St. Paul's Cathedral, Westminster Abbey. It's amazing how many times conversations stop on the threshold unintentionally. Whereas you walk in, you just kind of stop talking because it's so different. 
It's so big. Notre Dame probably was like that before it was trashed other places as well. The challenge for us, though, is to think about how that shapes how we are today. Because for them, it was an object lesson in their eyes. Their theology was packaged in a building so that when they went into the building, their eyes were to teach them what they were to think and what they were to feel and how they were to act. The architecture of the building was designed to showcase their theology. Who is your God? Look at his building. It's unlike anything you've ever seen because he's unlike any other God you've ever heard of. He's not a God of the dead. He doesn't need pyramids. He doesn't need mausoleums. He doesn't need things like he is a living God and he lives with and in and among his people. But he is a mighty God. So his tent in and among his people is more glorious than anything else. The challenge for us, though, is that the church has changed today and in a good way. Our theology is certainly written into this building, but not written in the same way. You did not pull up to the building and go, oh my, what a sense of occasion. (laughs) What what a moment. I'm overwhelmed with the awe of the building. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, that's how 1 Peter speaks about you. That is exactly how 1 Peter speaks about you. We're going to read it next week in worship. The sense of of wonder and awe and moment is no longer captured in a tabernacle. It's captured in the God who made the tabernacle and in the God who has changed his people so that when we get here, we go, oh man, it's not a building of gold anymore. It's a building of flesh, of people, of men and women, boys and girls, of different backgrounds and different accents and different languages and different everything all joined together in the name of Christ so that, you know what? In fact, actually, what we get to see is more lovely than what they get to see. They just had a building made out of gold that they had to build and carry with them and had to have been unbearably heavy. We have each other. How much more marvelous is that? How much more a sense of wonder, a sense of occasion, a sense of... Of grandeur. I would say maybe the second thing that we ought to think about when we think about that idea is to think about for us, particularly those of us that have grown up in the church, how easy it is to just think of God as just normal. To think of Him as just ordinary. Because He's just God. And to forget He's the triune God. The one who is so mighty that he speaks creation into existence. To lose that sense of grandeur and wonder at who God is. We just don't do awe very well as Americans, do we? The second thing you would have noticed, really, if you were going to go into the temple, one is that it would have been this tremendous sense of kind of occasion, this moment, this, this sense of, of, of overwhelming awe when you stepped into the place. The second thing that you would have had to have noticed, though, is when you, you approached the temple and you had the first kind of curtains that you had to step around, is that when you got there and you, you looked and you wanted to see where God is, you would not have been able to immediately see that. 
without looking directly through and past and over the altar. The geography of the building was shaped incredibly well so that you had this massive altar, described verses 1 through 8 here, massive altar located, situated directly between you and where God is. And what a great object lesson. You want to know the Lord? Well, there is a massive problem. The massive problem with knowing God is that sin stands in the way and sin must be dealt with. God will not tolerate sin within his presence. I mean, you would have the visible object lesson of that, that he doesn't even tolerate bronze in his presence. It's all gold in there. Everything's perfect in there out here where we are. Well, that's where we get the the cruddy stuff. But in between me and him, there is this sin and it must be dealt with. And so you have verse 1, you shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits, seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet tall, with horns on the corners. It will be covered entirely of bronze. It'll have some sort of like lattice work set in underneath it. It will be hollow underneath. And how you build an altar out of wood covered in bronze that does not burn when you use it, I'm not entirely sure, but God knows, and he says it explicitly, the way I showed you on the mountain. So that just visually... You would all figure it out that to know God, I have to pass through the altar. I have to have sin dealt with. I have to have a sacrifice to pay for my evil deeds or I cannot know him. And what a great object lesson that is so that when Jesus shows up, he can say, look, you should have gotten it. You should have been expecting me all along. You should have been prepared because the tabernacle was even teaching you that the only way you know God is through the proper sacrifice. That's what the author of Hebrews picked up. We read that. Chapters 9, 13. There's other chapters there too. It deals with it. But to say, obviously, they, they should have figured out by this point that they weren't giving the right sacrifice. They were, they were giving the one that God told them, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't a good enough sacrifice because you had to keep giving it. You had to keep doing it. The priests were constantly making sacrifices, constantly killing new animals, constantly having blood sprinkled on the horns of the altar, constantly having your sins dealt with that should have been an object lesson preparing them to think about the Lord Christ so that when he shows up they would have the categories in their mind of sin has to be dealt with in order to know God and I need a better sacrifice those would be the things that Jesus would do you want to know the father he would say Who do you need to know? You know me. Not Michael, Jesus. You know Jesus, you know the Father. He would even go so far as to say, I and the Father are one. This unity and union of the triune God so that if you know Christ, you know the entire Trinity. 
He is the only way to know God. Friends, this is a, a truth that our world today does not want to hear. A truth claim to one path. The only way the triune God may be known is not through Buddha. It's not through Muhammad. It is through Christ and Christ alone. Now most of us will say, well, I agree with that. That's easy. That's fine. I understand. Well, I maybe even go one step further and say it's not through you. The path to know God isn't, it's not you as the mediator. It's not, well, Jesus is great and all, but I'm more wonderful. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's also why the author of Hebrews takes up thinking about the quality of that sacrifice, to think of how great a sacrifice it is that it could be offered one time and accomplish victory for all eternity. I don't know if you caught the lyrics of the hymn we sang, the not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain, and how that highlights. Look, think about how many thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands of animals were killed in preparation for those altars, and how none of them could accomplish, and all of them couldn't accomplish what King Jesus does. To teach them that they had to have cleansing in God's holy sacrifice in order to know the Lord and brothers and sisters, that is no less true for us today. Apart from Christ, we cannot know God. At least not intimately. We'll know Him as judge upon death or the second coming. We won't know Him as Father. And again, I I would remind you, you know this. You know this intellectually, the challenges, figuring out how to get it into our hearts, but to think about how many of our neighbors, our family members, our friends, people that we love, are banking on their own sacrifice being good enough. Now, it's never said quite that clearly, like, oh, yeah, my sins are fine, I'm good enough. It said things like, well, I'm a good enough person. Or at least I'm not such and such. Or at least I don't struggle with this sin or that sin. Or at least I'm not like this politician or that politician. I'm a good enough person. And to remind you again to emotionally wrestle through that fact that our town, our neighbors, those people driving by outside right now, are headed to an eternity where they only know the judge. They only know his wrath. For God's people, it's a different experience. We hinted at this in Sunday school a little bit, but I love how the chapter lays it out here with this kind of slightly odd transition at the end. Verses 20 through 21. How it gives them a sense of flavor for what God loves. I like that. You get get an idea of what his tastes are, so to speak. 
what he thinks is good and what he thinks is bad. It's not so simple as does he like pineapple on pizza or not. That would be a silly sort of question, and the obvious answer would be no. (laughs) Instead here, we see what the consequences are for God's people. What does he like God's people to be like? What are his preferences? You shall command the people of Israel, that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for light, that the lamp may regularly be set up to burn the tent of meaning outside the veil, that is before the testimony, Aaron and his son shall tend from it morning to eve- evening to morning before the Lord shall be a statue for... And we're all like, okay, go. And all the details just went by. The reason being is because most of us buy our oil, our olive oil, things like that from a grocery store, and we never think about the practice as to how we got it. We certainly would not have paid attention to the exact way that this is described, that we are to be bringing pure beaten olive oil. This is in contrast to the other ways that olive oil could be captured. And if we were going to use today's terms, though they're anachronistic and not correct, we would say something to the effect of this is extra virgin olive oil. It's the good stuff. It's the way to get the oil that is the most pure that is most clean. It would burn the cleanest. It would have the least you know, fudgy smoke because it's not burning all of the crud that should have been filtered out. And the consequence being that this purity would provide a constant source of light in God's house. I love that. Just how he highlights at the very end, hey, here are a couple of things that are important to me. Not just that you have to bring oil, but it needs to be pure. Because God loves purity. Because that is something that is indeed valuable to him. It would be functional, it would be holy, it would be right. So that it would provide light. Again, I love that. Those are ideas that Jesus would take up later. Certainly articulating that he would be the light, that God's house would be filled with light. It's something that John writes in all of the time. Categories that he thinks of everything in terms of light and dark and nothing else. And again, being reminded that that's actually in so many ways uh, two of the things that our lives are to be marked by. Purity and light. You think, well, I mean, I know the purity one. That's the one that we've talked about all the time. And some of us grew up in the negative form of fundamentalism that uh, defined Christianity solely in terms of what you did not do. You didn't smoke. You didn't dance. You didn't drink. You didn't do, you know, those. You didn't hang out with people who did. Oh, man, if you swore, used bad language, that was the end. Missing out instead that it's not an issue of what we don't do. It's an issue of who we become. What kind of people we are becoming. Because you see, when we get to the life to come, if you are in Christ, you will be transformed so that you will be unable to be impure. You will be unable to participate in those activities that would make you unclean. You will be perfect in righteousness. Why on earth would you wait until then to start? Why on earth would we say, well, no, I want to be unclean in so much as I can now, knowing I'll be all right then? 
The second aspect I think is so intriguing, though, of how much of God's house is marked with light. Again, all of the materials are reflective or, or brightly colored. Uh, he has this massive you know, lampstand in the middle of his house, and it would have been a place that would have shown, showcasing glory. And again, how that theme is taken all throughout the scriptures of God as the God of light. And thinking about, again, we live in a world of darkness, Think of how easy evangelism would have been for your kids in that context. Mom, what's the only building I've ever seen that's lit up? Much less lit up at night, all night. You didn't do that in your normal home. That was not something you would have maintained that way. Again, we think in terms of electricity, but where there is no electricity when the sun sets, it tends to get dark. Here you have a building that wouldn't. But God's people being marked by this this brightness, by this beauty, by this glory, and even so far as we could say by this truth. In a world of darkness, to live differently. I'll end with one kind of brief challenge for us all. One of the great struggles in preaching through Exodus, I knew when I started, would not be the ten plagues. Ah, those are easy. We love those. I mean, it's really cool. Think about frogs being everywhere. As a little boy, think about the river turning to blood. Oh, man, that is easy preaching because that is so intriguing. I knew the hard part would be when we get to these chapters. Because while the early chapters were designed to showcase that God is more powerful than the false gods, these are the chapters that are designed to teach us about the real God. The the, the plagues show us he's just bigger, he's mightier, he's stronger than all of the false gods of Egypt. But here he's explaining who he is and what he finds to be important and what he finds valuable. And the reason why I knew it would be difficult is because we are in so many ways like small children. Certainly the internet has not helped with this. Where we get captured by the flashy stuff but aren't really interested in knowing him. Now, we would never be so unsophisticated as to say that. But to think about how much our lives are really just captured with what God can do and what he'll do for me and not filled with, man, I want to know him. Not know myself in him. Not know what he can give me. Not know simply how my life will be better with him. And it will be better with him but know him for who he is. Know him for what he likes, what he values, what he hates, what he's excited about. And again, our best illustration of this perhaps is in those early days of courting romance and marriage. That's how so much of it is the zeal, the joy, and the delight of learning that other person. And to think how bad a marriage is if it's really about just learning myself and not ever knowing the other person. And maybe the challenge for us today would be, I know for some of us, we do not marvel at who God is. And I wonder how much that's because we've defined him as just me, but a little bit better. And we've never actually spent the time to think about who he is, what he loves, what he hates, what is important to him, and marvel at knowing him, not just knowing myself or a reflection of myself, 
just a little bit better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it challenges us. Thank you that there are easy passages and there are difficult passages. Thank you that some of these passages are just um, so tender and encouraging. And some of them force us to use our thinking caps in ways that we never would have guessed. Oh God, we do pray that you would give us love for the Lord Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.